to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the latest GDP report and what it really says or perhaps doesn't say about the state of the economy in the United States. Also going to be having an on-the-ground update from Brazil as that country heads to the polls this weekend for the second round of presidential elections. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment, the Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell Professor of Law at Cornell University and Senior Counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean. Great to be with you again. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Hockett, a recent report from the Commerce Department that was released this week uh, shows that the GDP grew at an annual rate of 2.6% in July, August, in September, in uh, uh, contrast to uh, the first half of this year, where uh, the GDP numbers indicated a shrinking of the economy. And so I was hoping you could sort of uh, really parse uh, uh, this this number or this increase for us, uh, uh, Dr. Hockey, because I feel like uh, like with so many uh, uh, reports or notes or statistics that we see with the economy, it, it perhaps doesn't tell quite the whole story. And so what do you think uh, uh, this report from the Commerce Department really means? Uh, what is it saying? What is it not saying? And just uh, what is your estimation of it? Yeah, great. Uh, so I think there are a number of things that are sort of noteworthy about the report. Um, maybe two or three things are worth noting right off the top. Um, so, so first off, you might remember that a little while back, um, some of the sort of right-winger types were um, declaring that oh, we've already got a Biden recession underway and uh, everything's going to slow down and it's all thanks to Joe Biden and so forth. Whereas somewhat more thoughtful economists were pointing out that actually um, there are a lot of uh, lagging indicators that have to be sort of paid attention to to determine whether there really is a recession underway. Hence, they suggested it was sort of too early to tell. Um, and that turns out, it seems to have been right. In other words, we weren't actually uh, in the midst of a recession at the beginning of 2022. That being said, um, it's worth noting uh, that precisely for the same reason, there might be some slowdown ahead because, of course, as you guys know, the Fed has been jacking up rates um, uh, rather aggressively of late, supposedly to stop the inflation problem. Um, and that's, of course, a very weird thing for them to be doing um, because, as we know, uh, corporate profits are rising at a much higher rate than the inflation rate, whereas wages and salaries are rising at a much lower rate than the inflation rate. In other words, wages and salaries are a lagging indicator. Uh, corporate profits are a leading indicator. Hence, if you were really worried about inflation, you'd be looking at taxing away some of those corporate profits rather than jacking up rates as the Fed is doing. So given the wrongheadedness of that policy and the sort of anti-labor, sort of pro-corporation or pro-shareholder sort of bias of the Fed policy right now, 
I wouldn't say that we're out of the woods yet as far as the possibility of a future recession uh, is concerned. Um, and then maybe finally, uh, thirdly, it's perhaps worth noting that this is really kind of jangling up the politics a lot, right? Because Republicans for a while were kind of banking on being able to, you know, go against Biden for a recession. And now that's going to be a little harder claim to make. So looks like they're falling back on the inflation complaint. But that's kind of funny uh, because they're talking about tax cuts if they get into power, which would simply increase corporate profits more, which are the primary drivers, I suspect, uh, of the primary of the uh, present inflation. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned something that I think a lot of people are keeping their eye on in the U.S. right now economically, uh, Dr. Hockett, and that is the threat of a a recession. And as you note, we see the Fed, uh, you know, engaging these uh, uh, rate hikes uh, to try to, um, you know, uh, uh, curtail this, although, uh, you know, the extent to which that is successful, I think, at least to me, is is somewhat dubious. And I'm just wondering, you know, what, what really brought us to this point of being on the verge of a recession if we are not uh, already in one. I mean, I'm sure like with a lot of uh, current issues, a pandemic had uh, a bit to do with it. But I mean, how did things reach this point, you think? I think it's sort of a two-part process um, is is my take on it, uh, my sort of provisional take. So the first part of the process uh, is, you know, of course, the the longstanding policy of outsourcing and offshoring American production and the growing, the sort of steadily, seemingly inexorably growing uh, American dependence on global supply chains over the last 30 some odd years meant that we're not as able to produce what we need as we used to be. Um, And for a while, that was, of course, masked, or perhaps you might even say harmless, because we could indeed rely on those supply chains for a while. But one thing that the pandemic did, of course, was disrupt all of those supply chains and show us, in effect, how vulnerable, how non-resilient an economy is when it sort of goes um, that route rather than retaining domestic capacity. So first, we lost that kind of capacity. And in consequence, what happened, I think, is that once those supply chains did come to be disrupted, there were fewer goods available. Uh, Meanwhile, lots of relief money was available, as had to be, in order to prevent a complete meltdown of the economy during the pandemic. So you had the classic problem of too much money chasing too few goods. That that is, I think, what initially, that was sort of the initial impetus of the inflation. But then after that, a second phase kind of kicked in. And that is that basically lots of corporate CEOs and boards realized that since inflation had become a subject of public conversation again, they could start jacking up prices under cover of inflation and say, look, it's not our fault. Input costs have gone up. That's why we're raising prices, sort of hoping that you wouldn't notice the profit margins were growing at a much more rapid clip, even than where the price uh, rises. Um, So I think that's when the inflation sort of kicked into overdrive and became quite significant. And then after that, you know, there's sort of a third phase that we talked about at the top, uh, which is, you know, what's the policy response going to be? And because um, what we've done thus far, policy response wise, is essentially to try to choke off demand on the part of uh, consumers in the economy, basically middle class and uh, working class uh, people, uh, we are in effect flirting with recession 
precisely because we're um, targeting uh, the wrong factors uh, in addressing the current inflation. So I think that's sort of the story, right? In a way, it's a sort of three-part story. Um, if you sort of combine the two parts that I just described with the first part of the, the Fed's kind of mistargeting um, in trying to sort of deal with the inflation problem. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned a moment ago, Doctor, um, the, the the political sort of ripple effects that that all of this is having, and uh, you know, I'm also wondering about the uh, sort of social uh, fallout from this as well, uh, which I think is certainly connected to the political question. You know, namely in terms of wages, and of course, obviously, inflation and the rising cost of everything, and that being a cause of you know no small amount of uh, consternation amongst the uh, electorate. And so, how do you see that aspect of things uh, factoring? into uh, the economic picture here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's, it's um, again, it's a little hard to tell at the moment, Sean, I think, because the, the polling data is so all over the map. And furthermore, as we know from recent years, polling data isn't always um, predictive. Um, but there do seem to be sort of two sort of, um, let's say, sort of high, high heat um, uh, sort of emotional waves that are sort of passing through the electorate at the moment. And they both kind of cut in opposite directions when it comes to determining who people are going to vote for. And hence, it's a little hard to tell you know, what the upshot is going to be. But on the one hand, there is um, significant distress uh, out there among ordinary folk um, about uh, rising prices, right? about inflation, particularly given the fact that, as noted before, wages and salaries are not rising at the same rate. Uh, as are the prices of consumer goods and services. So there is, a, in effect, a decline in real income uh, that people are experiencing at the moment, notwithstanding uh, the you know continued rise of nominal uh, wage rates and salary rates. Um, and that tends to make people, uh, of, sort, of course, uh, sort of discontented with whoever the incumbents are in office at the time. And that would, of course, be the Biden administration and the Democratic House and the Democratic Senate. On the other hand, um, there's significant backlash, understandably, uh, uh, again, um, against some of the recent uh, Supreme Court decisions, in particular, the one that overturned uh, Roe versus Wade. Um, and, you know, fairly recent uh, elections, uh, sort of off-year elections or sort of off-cycle elections that have taken place in places like Kansas and New Jersey and New York sort of suggest that there might be uh, a democratic wave um, in response to that. So. I guess it's sort of a question of which wave ends up being the larger between these two waves that are sort of heading toward each other on a kind of collision course. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, doctor, you know, what do you see then as really uh, uh, the way forward? Like, what do you think it's going to take to really um, uh, uh, reconcile or critically address uh, uh, the shaky ground that the U.S. economy is on right now? Because it seems that, you know, what the Fed and others are uh, putting forth uh, just it, it seems like it's just difficult to try to uh, keep sort of our collective head above water on this question. Yeah, I, I think maybe three things, um, Sean, and you can sort of think of them as sort of uh, uh, long term, medium term and short term. Uh, so starting with the long term, um, we do, I think, have to you know accelerate the rate at which we are reshoring production. We basically have to make America make again, if I can put it that way. Um, and, you know, there was a time that this was the most productive economy in the world and the most um, sort of 
industrious, you might say, in the sense that there was lots of heavy industry, there was lots of production going on. We had a very healthy, vibrant, and large manufacturing sector. We have to bring that back. We are in the process of bringing that back, but I think we have to accelerate the rate at which we do that so that we basically have the capacity to produce at the same rate at which we demand goods so that you don't have too few goods given the amount of money um, out there. So that's a, a kind of a longer um, term project, but it should also be a kind of medium term project. That is to say, we can begin to make progress there pretty quickly if we're really serious about it, just like we were when we mobilized uh, for production during the Second World War. Um, next, I'd say, uh, I think the Biden administration has to look carefully uh, at corporate profits across the board, because again, as I noted before, that's, I think, the primary driver at this point of the inflation that we're seeing. One should not be targeting wages or salaries, which are, again, growing at a slower rate than the inflation rate. One should be looking at the profit component of price because profits are rising at a much more rapid rate than the inflation rate. That's the way actually to target the real culprit. And that's a kind of medium term thing, although it can begin in, that can, uh, it can begin even immediately, right, right away. But that will be a sort of a long, uh, a, a sort of a medium term project in the sense that we're looking at tax policy across the board. Um, and then finally, in the very immediate term, um, given the role that uh, gasoline prices play in inflation and in generating just overall discontent, I think it's important that for the Biden administration to especially uh, look at the profits that are being brought in by the petroleum companies. They are at the highest records ever, right? I mean, it's amazing the sorts of reports that we're getting, profit reports from companies like Exxon, for example. Those are windfall profits, right? Those are being generated by um, current uncertainties, of course, about petroleum supplies in the face of war um, over in Eurasia. And um, there's no reason that the Biden administration and its counterparts in other countries couldn't tax away those windfall profits and then use the, the tax take essentially to provide rebates uh, to ordinary working class people who are being hit by these rising uh, gas prices. And I would even go a step further than that myself, although this is going out on the limb to some extent, but I see no reason why we shouldn't nationalize our national petroleum supply. I mean, most other civilized countries that have lots of oil do that. That's what Russia does. That's what um, Norway did. That's, of course, what Saudi Arabia does. Um, the, we, the U.S., people don't quite realize this at this point, but the U.S. is actually the world's largest oil producer. But because we let these sort of distorted global, quote unquote, markets for oil determine prices, um, you know, you would never know that we have oil in abundance here in the U.S. So I think we probably ought to nationalize that and make it available to people on a nonprofit basis while speeding up our efforts uh, to uh, convert our economy to the use of uh, renewables. Yeah. And, you know, that makes me want to swing back around to uh, the political dynamics of this, uh, Dr. Hockett. I mean, uh, we're, of course, moving ever more swiftly towards the midterms uh, here in the U.S. And, you know, I'm just sort of wondering, what, what do you make of uh, what uh, uh, either side is putting forth in, t excuse me, in terms of the economy? Or do you even see it uh, being as a prominent issue there? I think it is. I, I do see it as a prominent issue, Sean, um, uh, for what it's worth. And I'm a little disappointed, to, to sort of put it mildly, um, in what both sides are offering, but I'm sort of more disappointed and even alarmed by 
uh, what Republicans are, are saying. Right? Republicans don't seem to have a plan at all. The plan seems basically be, to be simply to attack Biden. Insofar as they talk about any policy changes, they talk about tax cuts for corporations and for people at the top of the income distribution, which, again, I think is not only unjust uh, and unfair, but, but also precisely like throwing gasoline on a fire. I mean, that's the primary source of our current inflationary pressure, I think. Uh, and therefore, what they're really proposing is to make inflation worse. Um, the Democrats are not quite that horrible, <laughs> in my estimation, but it does seem to me that they're doing a very bad job of focusing on fundamentals. They're, they're sort of all over the map saying, well, look what we're doing for prescription drug prices. Look what we're doing for Medicare and Medicaid. Look what we're doing um, to sort of help get prices down in the agricultural markets. And look at the, the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and so forth. All of that stuff is good and it is stuff that they should be proud of. But it seems to me that A, they ought to be much more ambitious than they've been so far. They, basically, they ought to multiply all of those initiatives that they've succeeded in getting through thus far by 10. Uh, and second, when it comes to sort of selling uh, what they plan to do and what they have done, they should focus on a few basic factors, right, rather than being all over the map. And what they focus on should really reflect, I think, what the general public itself in the polling data is clearly most preoccupied about. And that's what you and I have been talking about, of course, inflation, uh, high gas prices in particular, and the threat of a looming recession, and how the policies that they've been pushing actually go directly to address those problems and would do an even better job of it if they were expanded or accelerated. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're having an on-the-ground update on this weekend's election in Brazil. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today from Sao Paulo by Zoe Pepper Cunningham, a journalist with People's Dispatch. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Zoe, of course, uh, this weekend on October 30th, uh, the people of Brazil will be headed to the polls for the second round of the uh, presidential election, which will see uh, popular former President uh, Lula da Silva face off against the far right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro. And I know that uh, you've been on the ground there for a little while, sort of scoping out the scene, uh, at least since uh, the first round that happened with this. And uh, Lula reportedly continues to lead in the polls. I was looking at a uh, article from uh, Brazil uh, de Fato that said that uh, the Poder Data Institute showed that Lula was leading with 53% of the intended votes in the race against Bolsonaro, who has 47%. And so I'm just sort of wondering, what, do you, what have you been seeing, what have you been hearing 
looking on the ground there in Brazil in the time uh, since the first round? And just what are people sort of, uh, 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 how are they sort of uh, uh, operating or orienting, if you will, uh, as we get closer and closer to Sunday? Well, I think it's an incredibly close race, and that has to be underscored, that there's deep, deep polarization in Brazilian society. Uh, as you said, the numbers, I mean, the, the margin of difference between Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party of Brazil and Jair Bolsonaro, who's running on the ticket of the Liberal Party, is is quite small. It's about seven percentage points. And as we know in the first round, a lot of the, a lot of the polls that had come out were unable to predict the vote of the right wing. So I think people are feeling a lot of tension, uh, but at the same time, a lot of hope, because um, despite kind of the nervousness about what could happen on Sunday, there is a lot of confidence that uh, Lula has consistently been growing. There's been a number of scandals that have happened in the past two weeks, um, Bolsonaro himself, Bolsonaro supporters, different uh activities and events that have happened that have really kind of put Bolsonaro on the back foot. He's come up with even more kind of attempted scandals to really respond to these uh, calamities, public relations disasters. Um, and so there is a lot of hope that uh, Lula will be victorious, given both the polls and also really just how he's performing, how people are responding to him. There is a sense of confidence in him, whereas in response to Bolsonaro, with the uh, number of cases that have happened in the past couple of weeks, there's a lot of uh, apprehension. There's a lot of um, mistrust. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say it's definitely a climate of uh Anxiety just because of what's really at stake in these elections, as we've spoken about on this show before. And I know you've spoken with a lot of other people about the Brazilian elections. It's not just a simple elections. This is not a centrist candidate against a left wing candidate. This is really the case of a far right project that is intent on destroying the environment, uh, you know, destroying social benefits, labor rights, uh, welfare for the people of Brazil versus a project that really wants to bring back hope to the people of Brazil. A project that wants to bring back the right to education, the right to housing, the right to health care. And so because of what's at stake, there is, you know, just a lot of apprehension about what could happen, especially given the nature of voting in this day and age, and especially with the amount of fake news, with the amount of instability and kind of volatile nature of this campaign, that it's really just uh, it's it's a tense atmosphere. I'll just say that. Yeah, for sure. And I was hoping you could uh, dig a little bit deeper into uh, just why things are so polarizing in Brazil, as you mentioned a moment ago. Definitely. I mean, on one hand, a lot has to do with what's been happening over the past decade. Uh, the very, very intense attempt of the right wing to kind of uh, retaliate against the policies of the Workers' Party um, over the past decade. So, you know, Lula da Silva was elected president in 2002. He ruled for two, two terms. Then Dilma Rousseff was elected. And their policies of wealth redistribution, of opening up new universities, of expanding social services, really hit at the heart of the interests of the wealthy. I mean, and this is given that they did not really challenge the capitalist system in any way. It was just really an expansion of social rights, an expansion of welfare, and trying to limit um, the power of Brazilian elites. But Brazil is a very conservative society. It is one of the last countries in the Americas to abolish slavery. It is extremely racially stratified a society, a class stratified society. Um, you know, the, the 
sons and daughters of workers, the sons and daughters of black people, formerly enslaved people, were not able to access university, were not able to arrive to these spaces of power. And due to the policies of the Workers' Party, more and more people from oppressed classes were able to access these benefits that were really reserved for the elites in the country. And so of course, uh, the project of, of the elites in Brazil has always been to limit. And, you know, they've come back with a fury. They um, really responded strongly to the Workers' Party. They started this whole campaign of lawfare against the Workers' Party, targeting Dilma Rousseff, who was eventually removed in a parliamentary coup d'etat, um, where famously Jair Bolsonaro, who at the time was a pretty unknown uh, deputy who had not really done much when he was uh, in the, the Chamber of Deputies, he famously referenced the military dictatorship while supporting the coup against Dilma Rousseff. Um, but really, this uh, the coup against Dilma, the imprisonment of Lula, which came two years later, on corruption charges as part of the Operation Car Wash, is part of a whole campaign in the media, in the judiciary against the Workers' Party to demonize the Workers' Party, say that they're all criminals, to say that they're part of the largest corruption scheme uh, in Brazil's history. A lot of this, which has been later debunked by the same media that even purported the, uh, spread these lies, um, but this, this have, of course, has an impact on the society. If you tell a lie 10 times a day, the people are going to start believing it, even if later you retract it and say that that's not true, even if the courts later show that these lies are baseless. So uh, this very, very intense media campaign, campaign by the, uh, the legal power against the Workers' Party, against Dilma, against Lula, did have an impact in society. Um, people have a very visceral reaction um, to the Workers' Party to Lula, the fact that he spent 580 days in prison, of course, has changed the perception of him as a candidate. And some people are unable to move on from the fact that he was in prison, the fact that he was um, convicted by Judge Sergio Moro, even though these convictions have all been overturned because of the political uh, motivation behind it, this, of course, has an impact. On the other hand, we have Bolsonaro, who's also uh, extremely divisive. And this is, of course, because of his own policies, not because because of a project of the right wing to kind of uh, demonize him, of course. But really, what he's done in Brazilian society is implant the discourse of hatred. He's definitely intensified this hatred of the Workers' Party, this hatred of Lula, saying that they're all criminals, that they have links to criminal groups in Brazil, drug trafficking groups. He has uh, utilized religion to say that, for example, the Workers' Party wants to close churches, that they hate religion, that they hate evangelicals. Um, and really, instead of attempting to unite Brazilian society, he's tried to divide Brazilian society to gain more support, um, to demonize his opposition. And this is, of course, has, has an effect in society. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, for the past four years as president, has essentially used his power to further cement this hatred of uh of the left in Brazil, saying that they're all uh, genocidal maniacs, that they have uh, relations with dictators, and a lot of other very, very, very explosive and volatile discourse, which, of course, has an impact in how people think about these elections and how they're approaching them. And so we see a really, really divided society, uh, some people believing you know, what the right wing has been saying for the past several years, others hating the policies that Bolsonaro has uh, done in Brazil over the past four years as president, his destruction of the Amazon, his um, horrible management of the COVID-19 pandemic, his 
so many other things that he's done in the country. And so this this really creates a scenario where people are very unhappy with the status quo. The economic situation is at an all time low. Uh, and and there's not there's there's not really from the right wing. They're not really offering any concrete programs. They're just offering this discourse of division of hatred. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate you laying out uh, all of that uh, context, Zoe. And I was also curious about the issue of uh, uh, these scandals that you mentioned uh, a little earlier. What's that about? Definitely. I'm, well, it's <laughs> it's been between the first round and the second round. I'd say every single day there's kind of a new scandal. Some of it is only in the realm of social media where maybe they'll be um, propagating old interviews or, you know, using uh making kind of trending topics about different things that people have said. But concretely, in the last week, uh, there were several incidents that were quite uh, intense. So, for example, um, a very, very big supporter of Jair Bolsonaro, uh, Roberto Jefferson, who has uh, close links with him. He uh, lives in the state of Rio de Janeiro, and he had been arrested because he was um, implicated in um, kind of these uh, digital militias, which uh, spread fake news during the 2018 elections. He had been implicated in spreading of false information, which we know was a key element and a key factor in the 2018 elections where Jair Bolsonaro defeated Fernando Haddad. And he, last weekend, had shared a video through his daughter's social media attacking one of the judges of the Supreme Electoral Court, saying that she was a witch, uh, all of these uh, different awful things about her just because she voted against um, the spreading of fake news by a far-right radio station, Jovan Ban. He sent this video out, and then and a, a group of lawyers called for the revocation of his house arrest because he had had been in jail and then he was in house arrest. And so they called for him to no longer be in house arrest and that it was necessary for him to be held in prison. So the the judges ruled that he should be put in prison. Uh, the military police go to his house to go arrest him. And he responds by shooting at police officers, shooting 20 shots with a rifle at police officers and throwing grenades at them. Uh, so, you know, as a very similar uh, instance to what we see in the United States, of course, since he's a white man, since he's a a uh, right winger since he's as economic and political power, but specifically because he's white, he is essentially apprehended, but there's no uh, retaliation by police. He is safely apprehended. There's a mediator from his party who comes to uh, hand over the weaponry that he has. He has an entire military arsenal at his house. Uh, and he's essentially turned over to the military police and put in protective uh, custody. Um, and this was a huge scandal because, of course, Bolsonaro pretends to be the defender of police, the defender of the military, and yet someone who's a very close ally of his is actually shooting directly at the police. So this was a huge scandal. Bolsonaro was forced to respond. He tried to distance himself from this um, character, Jefferson. But of course, there's photos of them. There's a lot of different statements from their uh, the party saying that they're great supporters and great allies of Bolsonaro. This, of course, played against him. There was still the repercussion of the, the statement that Bolsonaro had made about the Venezuelan, uh, the young Venezuelan girls. This continues to be um, in the media. And then uh, one of Bolsonaro's uh, supporters and allies in the state of Sao Paulo, eh, Tarcisio, had a huge scandal um, that erupted in the 
past couple of days wherein he was in a campaign event in a, in a favela in Sao Paulo, and there was some sort of uh, exchange of fire between police and an armed group in, in this neighborhood. And uh, the campaign team of Tarcisio, who's a strong Bolsonaro supporter, essentially uh, forced a, a TV station to delete their footage because it showed a security guard of the candidate uh, shooting an unarmed person. So these scandals have really erupted and caused a lot of uproar on social media, in, in uh, the mainstream media, and really played against Bolsonaro. That being said, we're still not seeing a huge impact on the polling numbers, but I think it's definitely creating a situation in which Bolsonaro is being forced to respond to these events and definitely creating an, an unstable scenario for him leading into these elections. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, Zoe, um, uh, what has campaigning looked like for uh, Lula and Bolsonaro in the period since the uh, uh, first round? I would imagine that there would be some uh, redoubled efforts and a kind of uh, intensity uh, that we see, particularly given um, how close it is, as we've been discussing. And so I'm just wondering what that piece has looked like. Definitely. I think uh, the big focus of this campaign has really been on the southeast region where I'm located in Sao Paulo. The state of Sao Paulo, Minas Gerais and Rio de Janeiro are some of the largest electorates in Brazil. They are actually the largest electorates. And they're also the states where there was the closest difference between Jair Bolsonaro and Lula and where's the biggest possibility for kind of changes in who votes for who and where there were great rates of abstention. So both of their campaigns have focused heavily on organizing rallies, on uh, working with local deputies to mobilize their supporters. So there's been a numerous, uh, a number of campaign activities here. Uh, Lula has shifted from doing these big rallies that are kind of closed and uh, not reaching the people to doing lots of walks through neighborhoods. He's got, he visited several popular neighborhoods in uh, Minas Gerais, in Rio de Janeiro, in Sao Paulo as well, um, to really connect with voters and get people excited, being able to walk in different areas so that more people can interact with him. This is, of course, the classic strategy of the left to reach the voters, to be in the neighborhood, to be with the people, to have very colorful mobilizations and manifestations. This has also been accompanied by very, very, very a strong strategy in this in social media. And this social media strategy has not even been led by the Workers' Party, by Lula's party himself, but been led by some of his new allies, uh, principally uh, the politician Andres Janones, who's been gained a lot of notoriety in the past couple of weeks because he's been sort of this social media warrior, um, you know, commanding a lot of people on social media to, to publicize a lot of the things that Bolsonaro has done to make... Uh, make visible and make known the different policy failures of Bolsonaro, or perhaps not failures, but the actions that he's taken against the Brazilian people to remind them the concrete impacts of Bolsonaro on the economy, on the lives of Brazilian people. Uh, also, another uh, digital influencer, Felipe Neto, who is a video gamer and does a lot of different streaming, he's gained a lot of importance in the Lula campaign of doing another strategy of mobilizing people on social media. That's on the progressive camp. And Bolsonaro, meanwhile, has also organized campaign activities, but we know this isn't really the strength of the right wing. These uh, activities have been much smaller in number, uh, but in the south, in the region of the south, they've done some motorcycle uh, 
campaigns where they ride around the city waving flags. Um, but largely a strategy of Bolsonaro has been attempted to, uh, is really just sharing uh, fake news on social media and trying to rally people uh, in that realm, doing a lot of different activities in churches. Uh, his wife, Michelle Bolsonaro, is a very, uh, has a lot of links to the um, evangelical churches, the Baptist Church in Brazil. Uh, she famously made a speech saying that Brazil is the last frontier against communism. So these are some of the different activities that have been taking place. But I think you're definitely right that it's doubling down on these efforts and specifically in the areas where they think that there can be kind of a swing in the vote and uh, opportunity to gain more votes uh, in favor of one candidate or the other. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, uh, uh, lastly, Zoe, you know, as, uh, of course, Brazil uh, prepares for this uh, election on Sunday, as I think you noted early, obviously, this is something that is going to have a serious impact, I think, both for the people of Brazil and for the uh, uh, Latin America region. And so um, my last question is, you know, how are we seeing other governments, other uh, uh, movements in Latin America or elsewhere sort of a uh, uh, responding to uh, this election in Brazil. I mean, it seems like it's something that uh, I think rightfully has uh, gotten quite a bit of attention. And so uh, basically, I'm just wondering, you know, what has kind of the uh, international response been to this upcoming election in Brazil? Well, as we've covered on By Any Means Necessary and other moments, uh, right now we're seeing a resurgence of um, progressive governments in the region. So a lot of uh, different uh, leaders, regional leaders, um, organizations have been looking to Brazil with a lot of hope and a lot of possibility because in this moment of the uh, the rise of the left, the rise of progressive sectors across the region, the rejection of neoliberalism, rejection of far-right politics in the region, uh, there is a hope that if Brazil, which is the largest country in the region with the biggest population, is able to elect a progressive government, this can open up many doors for regional cooperation, for economic cooperation, for resuming many of the projects that actually started during the first pink tide in, uh, in the region, which was kind of in this period of the 2000s. Uh, so there is a lot of expectation uh, around this. Uh, you have the really strong Andres uh, Manuel López Obrador in Mexico. You have Petro now in Colombia, who's really been a leading voice on especially the environmental issue. I think the environmental issue is at the center of these elections and having Lula uh, taking care of the Amazon and being able to make agreements in the region about how to further environmental protection is going to be huge. A lot of these governments have really taken this as a forefront task that, you know, understanding the pressing need of environmental protection. So I think there's a lot of um, excitement about this candidacy across the region. And, you know, Bolsonaro doesn't really have many regional allies. A lot of people have seen the destructive role that he's played in the country. He's extremely volatile character that not even the United States is really supporting. Uh, so it's it's he's getting support from, you know, far right figures like Viktor Orban, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, but he's not really uh, Juan Guaido, who really at this point doesn't even have any um, any leg to stand on. Uh, so I think across the region, there is a lot of enthusiasm for Lula and for the possibility of what a Lula presidency could be. Even the New York Times published an opinion video saying that in order to save the rainforest and to save the environment, uh, it was necessary for Brazilians to elect uh, Lula. So I think there's kind of this unanimous hope behind this presidency. 
Definitely. But we thank you so much, Zoe, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today, being joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective and the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Everything's cool, Miguel. Everything's cool. And, you know, I believe tonight actually kicks off the 2022 World Series. And uh, I was surprised to find that there won't be any black players in the World Series. And I feel like for some time, Miguel, you know, even as someone that doesn't follow conventional sports, I know there's been a long running conversation about the dwindling numbers of uh, black players in the MLB. And so I'm wondering what you think uh, not only of this uh, situation with the World Series, but uh, why we've seen things trending in that way as it pertains to black players in pro baseball. Yeah, Sean, so for the first time since 1950, there's no um, black American baseball players on each of the World Series teams. Um, There actually was more black American baseball players on the World Series in 1947 the year Jackie Robinson integrated baseball because Jackie Robinson made the World Series that year. Um, Then there is this year, 75 years later. Um, So that's really crazy and shocking. Um, But the numbers of black American baseball players have been dwindling over the years with MLB. Um, I believe at the peak they had 19% um, black American baseball players and that was somewhere in the, I think it was like 1981 or so it was in the 80s. But now, this is just overall players in the whole league. Um, now, in 2022, there was only 7% of the, only 7% of the baseball players were black American or black North American um, baseball players. Um, and there's, there's some several reasons for that. Um, first, the cost of baseball, like travel teams, is pretty high now. So I was looking at numbers and I think it's the average is 500 to $4,000 depending, you know, where you're at or where you play uh, to play travel ball, which is one of the ways, uh, you know, young kids that are really good at baseball get known. They play on travel teams, just like basketball with AU stuff like that. Um, and so that's one of the reasons it's gotten really more expensive. So pretty much it just caters to white suburban players. Um, the other reason is baseball years ago, which people have probably noticed, follow baseball. Baseball decided to shift their focus to Latin America, and pretty much like like all capitalists, they try to find cheap labor. Um, so there is a lot of you know Latino, Afro Latino black players in MLB. I believe it's forty percent of 
MLB players are not white. Most of them are Latino, and most of them are black Latinos um, from the like Dominican Republic or Cuba. And so, over the years, baseball has also, just like capitalists and other industries, decided, well, we want some cheaper labor, and they, you know, go recruit players from other countries. Where I was seeing a stat where the cost of one black American player like in the bonus, like the bonus they get when they get signed to cover 12 Dominican players. So I think that was, that's another main reason baseball decided to, you you know, recruit players from Dominican Republic, Cuba, Venezuela, because it's just cheaper for them because that's how capitalists look at things. They want, Oh, cheaper players make more money, more profits. I think that's a big reason as well. Um, there's one thing to note in this World Series. The only black person affiliated on any of these two teams is uh, Dusty Baker, the manager of the Houston Astros, um, who's been in MLB for years, since like the 60s or 70s. He used to play for the Dodgers back in the day. He used to be the manager of the San Francisco Giants when Barry Bonds was on the team. And Dusty Baker, people don't know, he's actually one of the... He actually... Him and another player that used to play on the Dodgers in the 70s, uh, Glenn Burke, they pretty much invented the high five. Um, so if you guys, if anyone's listening and want to look that up, you can look up Dusty Baker and Glenn Burke inventing the high five. So, <laughs> there's, only, <laughs> so there's only one black person on, from, from North America on these two teams, and that's the manager, Dusty Baker. Wow, yeah, that, that's really interesting, and 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 I appreciate you touching on this um, this this emphasis that the MLB has on uh, um, on uh, uh, immigrant players and players from Latin America, namely. And yes, though there will be uh, Afro Latin players, I believe, in the uh, World Series, and you know, I, I just felt like it couldn't have been a coincidence that. Uh, it felt like there was uh, at a certain point an emphasis on uh, players from some of the countries you named, the DR, Cuba, Puerto Rico, places like this. And these are great players. And I had an inkling that it had something to do with uh, the level of pay. And, and it's pretty wild to consider the fact that uh, this issue of exploited immigrant labor, uh, uh, you know, extends not just to, you know, other different sectors of labor that we typically think of as, you know, quote unquote, migrant work here in the United States but also even to uh, the echelons of professional sports. And so I was hoping you could get more into that dynamic of things, uh, uh, Miguel, and how it factors into this uh, issue. Yeah, so um, uh, I'm a big baseball fan, and then just reading about politics with MLB and sort of this topic over the last few years, especially with my podcast. So, like, Every team has an academy in the Dominican Republic. So they have an academy established in the Dominican Republic where they recruit uh, Dominican players as very young players, um, 13, 14 years old. I think 15 might be the age where they're allowed to sign. Um, so they could sign Dominican black players, you know, 15 years old, very cheap, put them in these academies. They'll have, you know, lots of young players. They're in this academy. A lot of them won't make the MLB, but some of them will, right? They live in these academies. They pretty much leave home and live at these academies because they're identified as, you know, these future baseball stars. But obviously not all of them will actually make it. Um, so that was kind of been the model, I think, since like the 70s where that started happening. I believe the Dodgers 
my favorite team. <laughs> but the Dodgers were the first team to have an academy in the Dominican Republic. And so that's where a lot of the most of these players tend to come from. Uh, there's a lot of players from Cuba, but because, you know, the blockade uh, makes it a little more difficult. Um, but yeah, pretty much they've all established these academies where they train these players. They eat there or they live there. They get trained there. Um, they go to school there to teach, they teach them English. Um, but this whole model that MLB has that they've pretty much taken advantage of to have this cheap labor pool of players because, uh, another thing, let's say, uh, let's say the Boston Red Sox wanted to recruit a black American player from, you know, like Roxbury neighborhood where it's predominantly still black. They could invest in this player, but. The other difference is, is if you're born in North America, you're you go into the MLB draft. So this black player that might be here in you know in Boston or in the U.S., they'll you know they're going to go to high school and then they could either go to the draft or go to college. But once that happens, anyone could draft that player. So any team could you know draft that player in the draft. But when it comes to a uh, black Latino player, like in the Dominican Republic, you could sign this player to your team at 15, pretty much have control of, of you know, this player and as a player in your organization, have control of their labor for years. They could get called up to your team. They don't have to get subjected to an MLB draft. So you have control of this player for way longer than you would have of a, a North American black player because that North American black player could go to the draft and they could get drafted by anybody. Um, so I think that's another main reason why they do this is it's pretty much the control of the labor. Um, and so MLB has pretty much just pretty much forgotten black America when it comes to baseball and just shifted their focus, you know, to Latin America to exploit uh, players there. Yeah, so the MLB goes to Latin America to get uh, black people on discount. That's that that's pretty heavy. That's that that's yeah. pretty heavy. And uh, yeah, so and switching gears a, a little bit here, Miguel, I also wanted to touch on uh, some of the ongoing fallout from uh, uh, you know rapper Kanye West and uh, his uh, anti-Semitic comments that triggered an absolute deluge of uh, canceling of deals and all sorts of things uh, 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 like this. And one of them is the closing of the. Donda Academy, this kind of what to me is uh, just kind of a strange uh, kind of uh, uh, apparatus in school that that Kanye wanted to uh, set up here. My understanding is that parents have to sign non-disclosure agreements for their children to attend. And yeah, I think uh, tuition is something like $15,000 a year. But uh, reportedly, Donda Academy will be shutting down for the school year. And this is coming from uh, Academy principal uh, Jason Angel who wrote in part, quote, our leadership team will be working diligently to assist all families during this transition, ensuring that every scholar has what they need to succeed in their next community in a prompt and gracious manner. We intend to begin afresh in September of 2023. And um, I feel like there's some connection here between Adonda Academy, of course, and Adonda Sports, uh, the the sports agency that I didn't know existed somehow until uh, all of this happened. But uh, uh, what do you make of these uh, developments with uh, the Donda Academy and uh, Kanye Miguel as these things continue to unfold? Yeah, so 
<clears throat> personally, I've been trying to avoid uh, paying attention to the Kanye stuff because there's just so much stuff going on right now. But this caught my attention because the sports stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess yesterday abruptly they decided yesterday Thursday um, they decided. I guess they sent the memo or email letter to a parent saying they're gonna close the school for the rest of the year because of the Kanye's comments, all the controversy. Um, but what really caught my eye about this is he has a basketball team at the at the Honda Academy, so it's pretty much like a AAU type of team. Well, it's high school because it's a school academy, but you know it's like a charter. And so that was kind of what caught my eye because. Donda Academy, I guess, had uh, three really good uh, high school black, uh, basketball players. And so I think one of them, they're all like top 50 recruits. I think one of them's getting recruited by Kentucky. So that's like a very top uh, college basketball program. Um, so that was the main thing that caught my eye about this. Like, it was like, okay, they're shutting down the school because of all the issues. Um, but it's really impacting these kids that are on the basketball team because now these tournaments that we're going to play in, these games um, are now getting canceled because the school is, you know, going to close for the rest of the year. So that's what's really caught my eye. I was like, because of what's happening with Kanye, it's now impacting these kids on this team. You know, they're trying to, they're playing basketball. They like basketball. They might be really good and they might get some opportunities. And now those opportunities are kind of, going to be limited because now they're not going to be playing in these big tournaments to kind of, you know, show, showcase their basketball skills. So all this issues with Kanye is not just impacting Kanye himself. Now it's going to impact kids on the basketball team of the school he opened. Um, so that was something that really caught my eye and I'm like, kind of really uh, made me feel for these kids, especially myself. I'm just a huge basketball fan. So, <clears throat> I feel bad for these kids because now, you know, might, they might lim- it might impact them for their basketball career. Who knows what happens now because they might not get more exposure from playing in these turn- big tournaments with other uh, uh, elite high school teams. Um, and, then, and then also the Donda uh, sports, I kind of knew about it, but I didn't know who was all in the uh, agency. I knew that Aaron Donald from the Rams was in it. Um, yeah, and then Jaylen I think Jalen Brown, yeah, from yeah. the Celtics, yeah, and they just they just decided to, you know, uh, cease working with uh, Donda Sports, um, and so those are two pretty big names that Kanye actually signed to his agency, and then pulling out is a is I think a big deal because those are some very prominent players in their sport. Yeah, definitely. And it totally is uh, unfortunate for those uh, young people who were sure that they were going to be able to play and get that uh, uh, opportunity. But now, like you say, all of this fallout is now really unfairly uh, impacting them. And uh, another thing I wanted to touch on today, Miguel, was uh, the UEFA, uh, the Union of uh, European Football uh, Association, is uh, investigating Ireland players over uh, what they call potential inappropriate behavior by Irish players for singing a song uh, referencing the IRA. And this was after they qualified for their first Women's uh, World Cup. Uh, what's happening here? Yeah, so this is something, uh, I guess, that happened a couple weeks ago um, when they won. So the, uh, I don't remember if it was, might have, uh, yeah, so it was the uh, Public of Ireland uh, World Cup team. 
um, women's World Cup team. They won. They're going to qualify. They're going to the World Cup, women's World Cup. And so one of their players filmed the, you know, they're celebrating in the locker room like all other sports teams when they win a championship or qualify for some big tournament. You know, they celebrate in the locker room, have a little party. Um, so they were just happy celebrating. And I guess they started seeing a, a Irish Republican Army song. Um, and one of the players recorded it on her phone, posted it on like Snapchat or Instagram or something on social media. And so I guess, you know, people in the UK saw the video and got really upset. Um, and so now they're getting all this backlash from the UK media, um, you know, pro-UK uh, media and just people in general. And so, so I guess some of these soccer players, like they've, they've kind of like made a statement like, oh, we apologize. We didn't mean to do this. Like they're already, you know, they made them pretty much backtrack from just the celebration, just just a normal celebration. I listened to the song, it's not even a bad song, just like some kind of chant, kind of sounds like a soccer chant. Um, and so just, it's just something that, you know, people in the UK just want to complain about because some Irish people here are actually celebrating and, you know, using the IRA song. And we know how that goes with the, the UK and colonizing the people of Ireland. Um, and so it was just kind of something I just noticed that happened and just really kind of upset me because I'm like, why are they getting crap for singing some song? Just, they've made the World Cup. They should be getting celebrated right now instead of getting some backlash for some song um, just because, you know, they disagree with Irish liberation <laughs> with the IRA. Um, so it was kind of a crazy thing that happened. Um but and it also made me think of the hypocrisy of just the U.S. and U.K. when a U.S. player, particularly even white players, win some, you know, championship or even before the game, they sing the anthem and like the national anthem here in the U.S. You know the history of it. You know Kaepernick shed light on it. Uh, it's, it has racist origins, anti-black origins in the lyrics, and we only play a certain part for the anthem. But, you know, nobody bets an eye for that. Uh, in the U.K., they might be celebrating the queen when she dies. But here, you know, some Irish women are going to the World Cup, singing an IRA song, and, you know, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, pretty ridiculous. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, October 28th, 2022. And of course, in 
20 minutes. You'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also uh, download our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.mave. That's wow. Sputnik.mave.digital. That's Sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And just like every day, we are streaming live from Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And at the top of the hour today, uh, 82-year-old Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, uh, has been hospitalized after an intruder broke in and attacked him with a hammer while reportedly in search of Nancy Pelosi, who uh, was in Washington, D.C. with her protective detail at the time of the break-in. And according to Pelosi's office, her husband had been, quote, violently assaulted by this uh, uh, intruder who is yet to be identified publicly. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of the book Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents. Margaret, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back, Margaret. And, you know, we've been talking on the show this week about this uh, situation with the progressives in Congress who put forth a kind of uh, a tepid letter suggesting to the Biden administration uh, that the administration pursue a diplomatic course to try to bring an end to the war in Ukraine and was pretty roundly excoriated uh, in a way that I think is uh, frankly pretty predictable. And I mean, they're all running from it now like uh, rats on a, a sinking ship. It's actually pretty embarrassing. Embarrassing to see, I mean, this level of uh, cowardice uh, being uh, displayed here. And as I've been pointing out, I mean, what they were suggesting, I mean, there was nothing radical or anything about it. They didn't even say to uh, uh, stop giving aid uh, to Ukraine. They just think that uh, diplomacy should be pursued along with the ongoing deliverance of aid. So following that, uh, a lot of the signatories and people involved really knocked themselves out to uh, distance themselves from it. Even uh, raising questions about the timing, people saying, like, oh, this was drafted in July. I don't know why it's coming out now. Like, I- I'm not sure what that is supposed to suggest. You know, some staffer <laughs> sat on it for a couple of months and randomly decided to drop it, I guess. But, you know, you recently published a piece about this on Black Agenda Report entitled Biden Orders Progressives to Denounce Themselves on Ukraine. And that's precisely what happened. And not only is it a sad statement, uh, Margaret, but I think, frankly, it shows just how uh, dangerous of a moment that we're in to where even the most 
tepid of uh, criticisms or even questions, not even criticism, just the, the, the slightest question around Washington's involvement in this proxy war in Ukraine is enough to get this kind of response. But how are you seeing it? Well, you know, um, uh, Sean, it was uh, it was interesting when I saw the letter. It was the letter itself, as you point out, was not one thing or the other. It, you know, said yes, we should give money to the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian military. Russia is evil. Ukraine is noble, um, but we think you should talk to Russia. So they were trying to have it both ways, which is the problem. But I believe all this started when uh, some members, um, uh, uh, AOC and um, Jamal Bowman here in New York, were publicly confronted by people who are in the LaRouche party and uh, who have I have a lot of issues with, but they're making a good point and asking the right question. Why is the United States giving Ukraine billions of dollars? I think we're up to 70 billion now um, to a government with many right wing, so far right wing. They are, in fact, neo-Nazi elements. And they're asking, why are the American people who are in need of so much funding this government that is full of uh, Nazi admirers, a government that honors people like Stefan Bandera, who was a collaborator with Germany during World War II and killed thousands of uh, Ukrainians. So people are, they're asking the right question. So I think that was the genesis of releasing this letter. Now, I'm guessing here, but I, I believe that there probably have been members who have wanted to say something. Uh, but they keep being slapped down and their, you know, their leadership tells them, no, that's, that's, you know, and that also, I want to add, you know, the word progressive when you're talking about members of Congress should always be in quotes because they aren't very progressive. They always buckle to their leadership. They don't stand up for the people. So they were hoping to get out of this jam they were in where they were being publicly confronted uh, by, you know, um, uh, trying to play both sides. Yes, we should give money to Ukraine, but actually, um, you should um, uh, uh, talk to Russia. Now, I was not impressed with the letter, but at the same time, I was happy to see some kind of movement. I was because it could have been the beginning, um, which is precisely why they were smacked down so hard. Uh, legitimizing the uh, any questioning of the Biden administration. It has been disappeared. Uh, the narrative that Russia is evil, uh, that the U.S. is blameless, that the only course of action is to fight to the last Ukrainian and give uh, billions of dollars of public money to the military-industrial complex. It's a new forever war. And they left Afghanistan, and I guess they said, well, we got to have another forever war, so Ukraine is it. But I felt like it gave space to those people who are daring to say, after this year of really intense war propaganda, having blue and yellow flags shoved down your throat, you couldn't even watch the Grammy Awards without seeing Zelensky, that someone uh, would say, publicly say, that diplomacy should be pursued. But they played themselves because these are people who don't have any conviction. So when uh, the administration told them to withdraw the letter, they did. 
And and now they all look worse. It's very embarrassed. I hope they're embarrassed. They should be. And any members who sincerely signed the letter in hopes of changing the discussion, they also were humiliated. So um, uh, we see, I mean, I suppose on the bright side, we see once and for all how worthless these so-called progressives are. They have a little racket. They're parts of the country where you need to say you're a progressive in order to win a Democratic primary. But that's just about it. And uh, we know that we cannot count on them, and it's up to us to do what these LaRouche members have done and start to be very public in our actions against this ruinous war that, by the way, has destroyed the economy of Europe, has damaged the entire world, this economic war of attrition. They told us, among other things, uh, Russia's just a gas station masquerading as a country. If you sanction their oil, that's it for the Russian economy. Well, lo and behold, the ruble has gone up in value, but the euro has gone down in value. European countries don't have the natural gas, which it made so much sense for them to get from Russia. And uh, it's something that needs to be changed. But anybody who speaks of any change at all, anyone who even dares to ask a question, is shot down the way these members were. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it makes me think about a couple of things. And you're right, because we describe these people as progressives. I mean, they're progressive relative to the fundamentally right wing political character of bourgeois electoral uh, uh, politics here in the United States and in truth, and I pointed this out on the show before, the people we call progressives are in reality the, the true liberals uh, within the, the, the Democratic Party. So yeah, they, they, they at least voice support for things like health care for all, uh, living wages, a student loan debt relief, and things like that. But we rarely see uh, them actually fight for these things. And we see why. <laughs> you know what I mean? Precisely because uh, of situations like what happened uh, here with this letter. And we know we've marked on the show before about how the uh, neoliberal uh, centrist uh, uh, leadership of the Democratic Party is frankly more willing to go after the, the left wing or, or the progressive or liberal wing of their own party more than they even are uh, to go after Republicans who we're told are their mortal enemies and things like that. And so to, to be a progressive uh, in that context, I, I mean, it, it, it's a very uh, constrained way to try to operate Politically. And, you know, I, I noticed that uh, it seems like a lot of these people, even even the people we wouldn't necessarily consider uh, progressives in the Democratic Party can sound really progressive, particularly on social media. And I have a theory about that. I can't prove it. But there seems to be this kind of unspoken agreement between these wings of the Democratic Party to where, you know, social media is considered uh, uh, an, an, an appropriate or an agreeable space to spout these progressive talking points. So that's why we see all these tweets from like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we had X, Y, Z? Well, what would you do if you had money for this, that, and the third? You know what I mean? You can do that. You can engage in fantasies on social media, but God forbid you try to actually put some meat on the bone or you get attacked uh, by your own party like a pack of rabbit hyenas, which is a more or less how they uh, uh, tend to operate. And so I think it shows the, uh, the, 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 the narrow path, if you will, 
And frankly, the powerlessness, I think, is perhaps the better word to, to, to use of the people that we call uh, progressives in uh, electoral politics, which, again, not only highlights, I think, the fundamental right wing nature of the politics of this country, but also, I think, Margaret, reminds us about the crucial importance of developing an independent political force to really address these things. Well, you're absolutely right. And I I believe that um, I think if you look at social media, especially at Twitter, on Twitter, you can see that they get a talking point and they're all start saying the same thing. And they can pretend, as you as you're saying, they can pretend they're really going to do something. Um, and I think they get a talking point for the week where to, this week we're going to claim we want student loan debt relief and then. Biden gives you, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 at the most. And then Ayanna Presley claims we have student loan debt relief. No, actually, we don't. And you have members claiming now people can buy houses. No, I don't think so. But uh, it's, it's very I believe it's coordinated all to uh, cut to the chase here. I believe they coordinate these messages and it's a way for them to pretend And that's as much as their leadership will allow them to do is pretend. And what we would really need would be to have um, House members who truly were revolutionaries, who were willing to stand up to their leadership. But there's there's collusion amongst all of them. And you can I don't know if you recall there was a vote on Israel and funding their Iron Dome and AOC and Nancy Pelosi was up in her face. You could see it on C-SPAN and AOC was upset and she was crying and whatever, but she still went along with Nancy Pelosi. So I, I often joke, I don't know why the right wing hate her so much. It's not like she actually did anything, you know. Um, so so that's the situation where that we're in, that we have. Um, uh, these people who are, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter what they think. If they go along with their uh, neoliberal imperialist leadership, if they keep, if you voted to give billions of dollars to Ukraine, I suppose you could say, I've changed my mind. I'm not voting that way again. But you would have to have really thought about it. You would have to have stiffened your spine. You would have to be ready for the inevitable pushback. And that's the other thing. These people also just aren't very savvy. They're not smart. How did they not know that they were going to get pushback? Um, And you you point out with the letter, of course, you know, they had to lie, right? They withdrew the letter because they were under pressure to do so. So they said, well, the letter was drafted a couple of months ago, except the letter referenced things that happened in the last couple of weeks. So I don't I don't believe that at all. So they look bad. They look worse than they did before. Uh, The peace movement is worse off because this little tiny bit of sticking your toe in the water and saying that the U.S. should negotiate has been completely discredited. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Twitter, you actually I saw you point out on your own uh, uh, page there, Margaret, about how, you know, what we're hearing from Elon Omar specifically today on the question of Ukraine is quite different from what we've seen from her just from earlier this year. I mean, she uh, posted a tweet in early March of this year saying, quote, the consequences of flooding Ukraine with billions of dollars in U.S. weapons 
likely not limited to just military-specific equipment, but also including small arms and ammo, are unpredictable and likely disastrous, especially when they are given to paramilitary groups without accountability. Now, I mean, you would almost think that Elon Omar uh, uh, tuned in to by any means necessary when, when, when she's talking like that, right? Not because this is a, a revolutionary anti-imperialist stance, but because these are sort of basic, this, it, it, it evidences a basic common sense understanding of where this all leads. And we know that this is true. We know that uh, only a small portion of this military aid is actually making it to the front lines uh, in the war in Ukraine with the rest of it ending up on the dark web and being sold to people uh, and God knows where for God knows what reason. And I maintain that it's only a matter of time before some atrocity or, or great crime crime is carried out using some of these stolen U.S. weapons. She also talked about uh, how they're given to paramilitary groups without accountability. Now, it seems to me that the neo-Nazi in that sentence is silent. It, it, it feels implied. I'm, I'm not in the head of Elon Omar, but when we talk about paramilitary groups in Ukraine, we know precisely the politics of those groups, like the Azov Battalion, like the right sector, like all these ultra-nationalists, uh, uh, neo-Nazi or or just otherwise uh, basically uh, a neo-fascist type of organizations. We know how they get down. And it's I don't think it's a coincidence that some of this same uh, issue that she's raising here. All, I mean, it reflects in the letter itself, which, by the way, she is a signatory to. And so it's just, it's just this sort of strange uh, uh, moment that we're in to where not only are there no anti-war voices in uh, Congress or even anti-intervention or anything like this, but people uh, uh, backtrack and flip-flop on stances and on uh, opinions like these because of this very pressure that we're talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this is what really gets me. And you note this in your piece, uh, Margaret, about, you know, it's hard not to feel opportunism from some of these folks. And I mean, to be frank, I feel it particularly strongly with uh, AOC, though. I mean, I'm sure she's not the only one to where the extent to which she's a progressive basically ends when there comes a threat, you know, to her position uh, as it is, because she knows very well that the mainstream leadership of the party will absolutely uh, raise up some other random person that's more in line with them. They'll fund them for their campaigns and do all of that. And so it's like they care more about actually maintaining their jobs. They can do that and they can still have this quote unquote progressive image without actually having to to fight for anything. So, I mean, it's I guess it's a decent gig if you can get it, if you don't mind forfeiting your integrity. You know what I mean? Yes, they. It's a very good. Uh, it's a very good gig. I think they make uh, hundred fifty thousand dollars, something along those lines, and um, it's a lot more than most people. Um, and uh, it's pretty much a guaranteed job. It's uh, uh, AOC did unseat uh, uh, an incumbent in a primary, but for the most part, these people have a job for life. They have it for as long as they want it. Um, and uh, they can, uh, you know, within certain limits, they can make more money. They, they can do a lot of different things uh, in their careers. So, um, so it is a good deal for them. But we have people who just see politics as a good deal. 
and uh, very few people who see it as a public service, who see themselves as um, who should represent the needs of the public. Large numbers of people want to see talks over Ukraine. It is not some uh, opinion that's way out in left field, I guess pun intended, right? Um, Not that I'm uh, uh, denying being a leftist, but it is a mainstream opinion. But we're told that it cannot be considered. It cannot be uh, discussed. And they, of course, go right along like they do with, uh, with everything else. And, you know, Congress in general has been abdicating its responsibility. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when um, there were always a few members of Congress who would stand up for the people. It may have been a handful. I remember when the Congressional Black Caucus was the conscience of the Congress, but they got captured by big money, too. A few of their members did sign this letter, but uh, everybody's run for cover. So uh, who knows who really uh, meant, um, uh, had any real sincere intent. But we're in a very, very dangerous situation. It's the U.S. that's escalating this. You know, Vladimir Putin hasn't said anything about nuclear war. It's Biden blurting out something about nuclear Armageddon. It's the U.S. sending the 101st Airborne. Uh, to a country bordering Ukraine. And the Ukrainians, by the way, they were talking with Russia early on. There were talks taking place that were hosted by Turkey. But what happened? uh, Boris Johnson, the former UK prime minister, went and scuttled the talks. And of course, he did so in coordination with the U.S. He wouldn't have done that on his own. So all this, you know, oh, you can't tell Ukraine what to do. You can't tell them they have to talk to Russia. They were talking to Russia. And they stopped because they were told to stop. So, um, and if the U.S. wanted um, wanted talks, there would be talks. But who blew up the pipeline, the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines in, in the Baltic? It seems to me the only uh, 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 logical conclusion is that it's the U.S. or someone under the direction of the U.S. So you see the escalation coming from this country. Um, we, uh, the U.S. is no longer promising no first use of nukes. We have a president who isn't well, who isn't very smart, whose entire team is aren't very smart. Everything they touch turns to mud. Everything blows up in their faces. And it's not enough for them to have instigated this war in Ukraine and created an economic catastrophe for the whole world. Now they're trying to start something with China, too. So um, it's the U.S. that has to be kept in check. And we do need someone to stand up and, um, and say so. But it's not going to be anybody in Congress. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Margaret Kimberly. And we have a caller on the line here. Alex, tell us what's on your mind. Hey, um, I was just kind of curious because I actually don't pay as much attention to this as I probably could. I don't have enough time. But I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on, like, kind of what I see is sort of a splintering between, you know, the U.S., U.K., and maybe Australia with their extreme bellicosity and the rest of Europe that they're trying to kind of get them to go along with. Because from what I remember, there wasn't as strong of a desire to escalate tensions in Ukraine and stuff from places like Germany, which, you know, you can say whatever you want about their positions on it. But it feels like there's this sort of, you know, the AUKUS formation that's sort of pushing war and bellicosity more and sort of painting Europe into a corner as far as what they can do. And I'm just kind of curious what your assessment is on, like, what those relationships are like now, because I haven't been paying as much attention, like I said, and I'm just kind of curious if you guys have more to say on that. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for calling, Alex. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Margaret, your thoughts? Well, you know, the Europeans are like the progressives in Congress. They might whine and complain, but usually they end up being good little vassals. So um, we have seen them go along with the United States. Uh, now they're, um, all of their economies are hurting. People are on strike, massive demonstrations, people saying we should leave NATO, we should leave the EU, um, uh, energy prices that they can't afford. And so what do they do now? So France and Germany, they want to complain that, uh, you know, one of the reasons the U.S. uh, engineered the coup in Ukraine back in 2014, they wanted to uh, make Europe reliant on U.S. energy, on uh, liquefied natural gas, frac gas. And that's what they've been doing. Well, guess what? It's more expensive than the natural gas from Russia that they should be depending on. So um, the leaders of France and Germany uh, complained to each other, oh, this is so expensive. But they are they really going to do anything? No, they're not. They're pretty much like the squad, you know, frauds. So um, these countries are – and let's not forget, these European countries are occupied. You know, the U.S. is always talking about uh, – uh, Russian troops or some, some other country, uh, and the U.S. with 800 military bases around the world, they've got their U.S. troops in the U.K., in Germany, in Italy, um, in Poland. So these, these are occupied countries, and they are controlled by the U.S. I mean, quite literally, they're vassal states. Uh, they have no independence. The U.S. doesn't want them to have any independence, so much so that they're willing to impoverish them in order to get what they want and acting like a hegemon. Uh, hegemons don't have friends. They have enemies or vassals. So um, uh, the Europeans are in that situation, and so they go along. So they have investigated this uh, pipeline leak that I, I mentioned, but they've said they're not releasing any of the information. Now, why would that be? Uh, because it's because the U.S. is the one that did it. That's why. If there were any evidence that Russia had done it, they would be telling us about it. So at an opportune moment in the future, they will release information and they will tell us, big surprise, that they've concluded Russia has, is the one that's done it. Uh, so they are in a bind of their own uh, making. They're, they need revolutionaries, too. But um, 
so they are in the situation of uh, progressives in uh, this country uh, looking, hoping that uh, they don't get beat up too badly. But the U.S., especially with President Biden, is determined to do just that. And that's why they don't act in their own interest. I mean, these countries have done themselves in. I mentioned Boris Johnson. It's Ukraine that got him out of office. Uh, it's that issue alone. He squandered his um, uh, prime ministership over this issue. And they've all squandered uh, a lot. And unfortunately, I think that's going to continue. Yeah. And, you know, on a similar note, uh, thinking about the upcoming midterms in the U.S., uh, uh, Margaret, it's 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 kind of interesting to see how uh, the Democrats in some cases seem to be slamming the emergency button to really try to get uh, some support for uh, uh, some of these important races. And I mean, the one that I'm thinking of specifically is, you know, the Georgia term where, you know, uh, excuse me, the Georgia race where, you know, both Obama and uh, Stacey Abrams, of course, a popular official in the state, you know, are going to be helping to campaign for Raphael Warnock. And and when I first saw that, I I literally laughed out loud to myself because like you have to do all of that to beat Herschel Walker. I mean, Herschel Walker might be the only person in American politics in worse cognitive decline than Joe Biden himself. But yet you got to pull out this uh, popular ex-president and this uh, popular black uh, uh, public official uh, in the state to try to shore up uh, uh, Warnock, who, you know, in the context of this country's politics is eminently legitimate. You know what I mean? So, I, I you know, obviously the, all these races still have to be won. There's a lot still yet to be seen. But I mean, the fact that uh, they're having to pull out these kind of tricks, I think maybe doesn't bode too well. Well, Warnock, I mean, he's, as you point out, is the incumbent senator. Uh, he should be cruising to victory. But uh, so they uh, uh running against a black person. They got another black person uh, who black people don't like, but who will energize white people. Uh, he's a good old boy type. Uh, even though he's black, he's always talking about crime. Uh, he's a, it's kind of funny. His son doesn't like him. He paid for abortions, even though he says he's against abortion. But they don't care. Uh, one of the Georgians said, we don't care who he is as long as we get what we want when, when he's in office. So should he win, they'll surround him with experienced people and they'll talk him through being a United States senator. And uh, they could care less. But Warnock is in trouble and other Democrats are in trouble because the Democrats have not delivered for the people. They, what, what, is, uh, uh, what does Biden say about the economy? He talk, talks about Putin's price hike or something stupid. Um, he didn't deliver. He didn't even give people the measly little stimulus. He said $2,000 if you elect these Georgia senators, you'll get $2,000. And then it was like, oh, did we say 2000 Well... Uh, you already got 600, so it's only 1,400. Um, the minimum wage will go up. Well, actually, it hasn't. And, and all these gimmicks, he uh, announced pardons for people who were convicted of marijuana possession in federal courts. Well, guess what? There's hardly anybody convicted just for possession. It doesn't free anyone, not one person. It doesn't even expunge a record. So uh, he has the power to legalize weed and uh, won't do it, which is, uh, I think, is funny because to, to me, it's a, 
something that would definitely be a win. But uh, they haven't delivered for the people. Uh, Gas prices are up because of the sanctions against Russia. These people are so stupid, Sean. They don't even know how capitalism works. If something's in short supply, the price goes up. So they engineered this. So what does he talk about? So racist dog whistles about the police. I'm going to give money to the police. And these insurrectionists are, you know, anti-cop. People are are done with January 6th. They try to use that to energize voters, but it doesn't work because people are concerned about their everyday lives. Uh, We hear about, you know, it's a buyer's market in the job market. I don't believe that's true. There are a lot of struggling people, and none of that has changed. So people got a child tax credit for a year, and then poof, it was gone because there's no Build Back Better because the oligarchs didn't want Build Back Better, and so they backed away from it and blamed Mansion and Cinema. how very convenient. But the people haven't gotten what they need. So uh, Warnock and other Democrats are in a bind. They can't run on any success. So they want to talk about abortion. That's not an issue that motivates how people vote. It just isn't. And, uh, you know, so Biden says, you know, if I win the House and the Senate, we'll, you know, codify Roe v. Wade. But they always say that. Just give me the seat and you'll get X or Y, but then you don't get it. So nobody's fooled by this anymore. So, yes, Warnock is could lose to Herschel Walker. And across the country, Democrats could lose. They could lose control of the House or the Senate or maybe even both. And it will be because of the interests that the uh, Democratic Party protects. Um, What did Biden say when he was running? Nothing will fundamentally change. And he meant it. And he was talking to the big, he said that at a fundraiser, he was talking to the big money people. And these greedy oligarchs don't want anyone to have anything. And the consequence is that Democrats then have um, no way to motivate people. Trump is history. People came out in droves because they wanted to get rid of Trump. Uh, But there is no Trump. Uh, They, they use him and, uh, You know, he's so stupid, he, you know, won't turn over documents and puts himself in the, you know, papers or, but um, back in the media in a negative way. But that's not enough to get people out either. Democrats often have trouble in off-year elections. So, um, so yes, the Herschel Walkers of the world uh, may emerge victorious. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and I always say that uh, Joe Biden saying that nothing will fundamentally change, that that's got to be the only promise he's actually kept. And, and I'm going to keep it real. Like if, if you lose to Herschel Walker, th- this mush mouth bumpkin, you, you just got to move off the planet at that point. You got to leave Earth. That That's just too that's just too humiliating. And I mean, his, the, the whole situation with Herschel Walker has just been pretty fascinating to watch. And I think it just really shows you a lot about the uh, uh, Republicans who have been shrieking about uh, uh, abortion for decades at this point, opportunistically, as I pointed out, as part of this uh, broader project of uh, assaulting basic Democratic rights that we're seeing uh, really intensely. 
intensified now with uh, the conservative supermajority on the uh, uh, Supreme Court. But, you know, with all of that, all these things coming out with his son, I just saw the other day, there's another woman that's claiming uh, Herschel Walker tried to get him, her to, you know, tried to uh, uh, pay for her an abortion. And they clearly do not care. Right. They clearly are not uh, uh, so motivated by moral conviction that uh, they would pull down Herschel Walker, who is very useful to them in Georgia for all the reasons that uh, uh, you just laid out, Margaret. And so I think it just exposes the reality that all of these different, uh, you know, these quote unquote family values that the Republican Party makes as their brand is really just uh, a, a, a thin veneer, a facade, really for uh, uh, them really wanting to ramp up the attack on poor working and oppressed people. You know what I mean? Sure it is. I mean, look at Trump. Uh, you know, all this, all, what did, I, I remember when he was running and people said, well, will evangelicals vote for him? And I said, hell yes, they'll vote for him. They don't really care. So he's divorced, married how many times? The latest wife was a model, quote unquote, in a skin mag. And they didn't care. Um, so, uh, so yes, that's, and it's, so it's a, it's a kind of mutual collusion where the party doesn't care about abortion. Uh, people sort of care about things, but there's a basic, um, affinity that they have for the right wing. And so that's who they end up supporting time after time. Actually, more people came out for for Trump than they had for other um, uh, Republicans. So, uh, so yeah, we have hypocrisy actually on both sides. Because it, let's just look at the facts. Democrats didn't care about abortion either. Uh, now, one side who said that we're going to get rid of abortion and we're going to go far to the right, they kept their word. But uh, Obama campaign saying he was going to codify Roe, and then what did he say once he got into office? This is not my highest priority. Well, it wasn't a priority at all for him. He had that golden opportunity, control of both houses of Congress. But I suspect he didn't push it because he knew the rest of the party didn't really care either. So, um, And they didn't care about the state houses. That's what's making abortion illegal. All these states that Democrats allowed Republicans to win because— they uh the, the so-called down ballot races, which are actually when it comes to impacting our our lives, these local races, these state races can be more important. But Democrats don't care about those. So we have all these Republican controlled legislatures, and that's why um uh abortion is illegal now. That's why why I think why there's gerrymandering, uh why Republicans can um uh, get uh, fewer votes but have more seats. They they play the long game, and they're serious. And the Democrats are not serious about much of anything. And that is why Warnock is in trouble, and it's why other Democrats are in trouble. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Margaret Kimberly is here as we continue. And uh, Margaret, not to make too hard of a pivot, but I did want to touch on uh, this news about Elon Musk uh, finally completing his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. He posted kind of a cringy tweet. He was, you know, uh, saying, uh, you know, I I own Twitter now. Let that sink in. And he walked in with a sink. It was like he was trying to be like a living meme. Didn't really didn't really land, in my opinion. But either way, uh, not only does he now have control of Twitter, he's fired some of its top executives. It uh, seems like Donald Trump may be getting his account back uh, sometime soon. I mean, to be frank, I'm a little surprised. I mean, obviously, you know, this has been in the news for a minute in terms of Elon talking about buying Twitter and blah, blah, blah. I was never really clear about whether he actually wanted to buy it or if he was just, you know, doing, you know, egotistical rich guy antics. You know what I mean? But here we are. He does own it. And some people think that uh, this may trigger some, uh, you know, considerable qualitative shift in how the uh, uh, site operates. I mean, that might be true. If it does, I doubt it'll be for the better. But uh, definitely wondering your top line thoughts about this, Margaret. Well, I have so many mixed feelings. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad you explained the joke about the sink because I it went right over my head. <laughs> and it didn't land. Um, but um, we live under billionaire rule, and that is a problem. Uh, the wise, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, um, owns the Washington Post. That is not a good thing. So now we have another very wealthy man who owns Twitter, and Twitter is the media now. No one does anything. You can't do anything without going on Twitter. Um, so it's very, very influential. Uh, people get news, entertainment, everything from, from Twitter. We were talking about these elected officials going on Twitter to deliver their messages. So this is huge. I also wasn't clear about whether this was really going to happen. He said he wanted it. Then it seemed like the deal had fallen through and, Then very rapidly, things have changed, and he does own Twitter. Um, I have to say this, that is a good thing. He has said, and we'll see if he sticks to this, that um, uh, Twitter used to permanently ban people. And usually it was people who fell outside of the realm of the state narrative. Um, And he said he's going to let them back on. Now, one of them, one of my favorite podcasters, a guy named Brian Berletic, has a great YouTube channel um, and called The New Atlas, with great for foreign affairs. He's back on Twitter after being kicked off. So uh, if he means that, and the black people on the left, I am most concerned about. Um, of course, YouTube, is, I, I think, is also a big problem there. So if he means it about Twitter, it's not quite enough. But we'll see. So I uh, approve of that. Now, he is, um, of course, I'm not comfortable with uh, uh, him or any other billionaire controlling uh, our media in this way. So there are some good things about him uh, uh, owning Twitter privately. It's no longer public. It's private. So um uh, so once, but we're still in the same situation where we're dependent on these big money people for our information. The problem is that corporate media, it's just that. And whether it's privately held or publicly, 
um, uh, held, it is still corporate media. And we have people whose interests more often than not are not ours. They have no incentive to really have a free flow of information, especially for black people on the left. Uh, if the government drops the hammer, they, they, they kick people off. And uh, we'll see if that uh, we'll see if that lasts. But um, it's a bigger issue, though. This billionaire rule that is not a good thing. It is not a good thing at all. But some of the people he already and of course he got rid of the CEO and the CFO. Of course he he's going to put his people in there. But some of them were very big championships of champions of censorship. So I'm not sad to see them go. And people are like, oh, so-and-so got fired. Well, some of these people needed to get fired. Um, so I hope he means what he says about free speech, but we don't know. And I don't care if he lets Trump get back on Twitter. I never saw the need for for Trump to uh, be banned or for anybody to be banned. No, Nobody should be banned unless you're threatening people, unless you're threatening people's lives or um, using slurs, anything else, political disagreements, let everybody on. Let Trump back on. If the Democrats had more to say for themselves, they wouldn't have to worry about anything that Donald Trump had to say. Um, but uh, uh, so I don't care if uh, if Trump returns. It doesn't bother me at all. I just want to see people on the left return. And Ukraine was a huge um censorship uh, uh, moment, the war propaganda. There were people who had great um, uh, information on Twitter and they kicked them off because they weren't following the party line. So we'll see how this works. But as long as information is in the hands of corporations, we have a problem. Yeah, you know, and I appreciate the way that you sort of laid out a lot of those different dynamics. And, you know, I think the framing that you brought here in terms of Elon Musk uh, owning Twitter as part and parcel of this uh, capitalist class capture of media and information. I think that's very, very on point because as folks may know, it's about uh, six corporations that control 90 percent of media uh, in the U.S. And when we talk about the media, we're not just talking about the traditional uh, uh, platforms and outlets. I, I think uh, social media factors into that as well. And so I think we could make a similar argument for uh um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Meta and, and the role that uh, Facebook plays in all this and, you know, uh, uh, the wealthy putting themselves in this position to determine what is good and bad information for us to use to determine what is, quote unquote, real news and, quote unquote, fake news, what deserves a little scarlet letter label of state affiliate media and stuff like that and and who doesn't. I think that's a, a part of uh, this whole deal as well. And so when we talk about a dictatorship of capital, which is what we live under in the United States, uh, for anyone, you know, if you just want like a quick and dirty uh, definition of what capitalism is, it is a dictatorship leadership of capital to the detriment of humanity itself. And so a part of that dictatorship includes the mental terrain, right? And the information space and what is considered uh, common knowledge and what is accepted as legitimate and decried as illegitimate. You know what I mean? This all flows from the fact that, you know, uh, the, the, the sentiments and attitudes and opinions of the ruling class 
then become that of uh, the society itself. And that's true under any system. So there's a far greater problem that I think you're highlighting here, uh, 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 Margaret. And I think the, the proxy war in Ukraine is an excellent example of this, is when we have these capitalist class interests with their hands directly on a 24-7 nonstop uh, media machine, well, then that has some, uh, I think, at the very least to say, uh, worrisome uh, uh, potentialities for uh, popular consciousness in a country, a capitalist, imperialist country that is very aware of its own decline. Yes, and, and speaking of Ukraine, he's involved in Ukraine because Starlink satellite system was being used by the Ukrainian uh, government in, um, in this war. And so we have this man who is directly involved in this conflict, uh, which could literally go nuclear. It's not just an expression anymore, but he also owns this huge media company now. It's just, it's very disconcerting. But um, uh, we have these companies that are in league with the state. You mentioned uh, Facebook, Meta. Well, they, they told you, they, NATO tells them what to, uh, what's allowed to be posted and what isn't. The Atlantic Council, that's NATO. It's the soft power arm of NATO. And it was allegedly about Russiagate and stopping Russian you know, disinformation. But, um, uh, but the whole Russiagate hoax was, was all about making sure that um, people who wanted any sort of foreign policy change would be, um, would be X'd out. So that if you post, for example, if you post about Ukraine, you should try it. I, 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 um, I ask everybody to do this little test. Go on Facebook and say something negative about Ukraine. No one will see your post. No one. Uh, so I, when I post about Ukraine and people laugh at me, I, I say the country that starts with the letter U, you know, and I use all code words. And then, of course, people can see it. So um, uh, this so this is a very dangerous uh, uh, moment in this, <clears throat> as you said, the dictatorship of capital media consolidation, which started in the 90s under Bill Clinton. Uh, there used to be hundreds, there used to be thousands of media outlets. Now it's like six corporations that control just about everything you hear um, and see. So um, uh, we'll, we'll see how Musk goes. People are choosing sides. Somebody, some people say they're going to leave uh, Twitter. I'm not leaving it yet. Um, some people, you know, are saying it's going to be a good thing. Some people say it's going to be a bad thing. It's going to be good and it's going to be bad. I personally am not going to give up uh, a means of communicating <laughs> with people. So I'll stay on it, you know, unless they, they kick me off or something else happens. But uh, it's just another example of how our lives are controlled by this insane amount of wealth. People like uh, Musk have, you know, more wealth than half the people on the planet. He and, you know, I can't remember uh, what the numbers were. It's like eight people. And if you put all their wealth together, it equals what everybody else in the world has something, something along those lines. I think I'm messing up the numbers, but I think people get my point. And that is the bad thing here. And that's the bad thing about Musk and uh, uh, people like him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Elon Musk, everybody's favorite uh, apartheid American. And, you know, uh, another point that you made that I thought was really on point, Margaret, was about how we see these tech companies colluding with the state. 
And I think the Ukraine war has also shown that I've said a bunch of times on the show because it needs to be said about how, you know, um, these other alternative media outlets. Although I know you don't care for that phrase, Margaret, but, you know, alternative outlets like, um, you know, consortium news or mint press that come under attack and they're not even uh, state affiliate affiliated media. Not that if they were, it would justify it. But it's just clear that the whole uh, misinformation trope that uh, we're subject to so much here is just an obvious ploy to uh, suppress any kind of dissent. And, you know, I don't know, this is an aside, but when you talk about how you have to say the country that starts with the letter U, you know, I'm telling you, if this doesn't already exist, somebody somewhere needs to write like a deep probing, uh, a full length treatment of how like algorithms and censorship impacts language as we know it. And I'm talking about stuff like uh, uh, people, uh, you know, uh, uh, writing, you know, YT instead of white, you know, or, or wheat instead of white or how, you know, reactionaries were using the uh, the, the globalist parentheses. I was like this anti-Semitic uh, dog whistle. It's just it's all these ways that people try to basically cheat the system so that they can uh, continue to, to, to post without uh, uh, having a site come 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 down on them. So, you know, I, I just generally think there's kind of a deeper conversation to be said about how these things fundamentally impact the way we communicate. But uh, it also shows how deep this uh, elite capture, if if we could borrow uh, a phrase, uh, this elite capture of information and of uh, the media goes. It even trickles down to the level of the algorithm, this like, you know, intangible thing that a lot of us kind of understand It's you know what I'm saying? This thing that's just like so uh, uh, easily manipulated uh, by those in power, but something that all of us are uh, subject to depending uh, seemingly on our politics. And so it, uh, it, uh, I think is just uh, all part and parcel of the deepening social and political crisis here in the U.S., which, of course, is directly connected to the economic uh, crisis. And and ultimately, the crisis itself is the crisis of capitalism. And I think that uh, of all the things we've talked about uh, uh, this hour, Margaret, that that really is what it boils down to. When we look at all these different issues, uh, Ukraine, Elon Musk buying Twitter, uh, uh, the, the midterms, I mean, a lot of it boils down to the contradictions of this capitalist system that uh, uh, are now raging so intensely that I think uh, we'll continue to see uh, uh, different sparks and blow ups from it. And and I think that if what we want to do is to protect ourselves and each other from that, then, of course, the only answer is to organize. It brings us back to what we were discussing a moment ago about uh, uh, having that uh, independent organized movement outside of the political mainstream to really go after these things. And, and for the record, it should not take the form of a, a reactionary uh, formation like the uh, uh, LaRouche group. And so when when we sort of think about that and think about the best way to move forward, uh, Margaret, it, it just seems like there has to be a kind of urgency with the uh, uh, organizing that we're doing, because, you know, it seems that things grow worse by the day and uh, the clock is steadily ticking. You're absolutely right. It's a much larger uh, crisis. And uh, I always want to talk about the crisis of the environment. We all heard about a billion crabs disappearing from their usual uh, grounds in Alaska. 
Um, something like 70, is it 70% of animal species disappearing in the last 50 years? So all of it's a moot point if something isn't done about that. And that, too, is part of uh, uh, the impact of capitalism on us. Totally. And, you know, it continues to strike me about how this existential threat to everybody, because that's what climate uh, catastrophe is, is not being treated as something uh, that will take a massive and very intentional uh, collaborative effort amongst the government and peoples of the earth. I mean, it's all very uh, uh, random, all very scattershot and clearly uh, all designed to not actually uh, uh, resolve the problem as we often uh, touch on here on the show, which is why basically it's left up to us. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Margaret Kimberly, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.